Hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Are we recording? Yep, 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 we are. And today we are looking at 1 Kings chapter 8. Very long, very long. <laughs> Warning. Uh. This is possibly the most boring episode yet. Yeah, but 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. And then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. So King Solomon sends out this email saying, all the important guys, all the managers, all the top tier leaders must come. Why? Because we have to accompany the Ark of the Covenant to its permanent place in the temple. So this is God's moving in day. Very, very important. Verse 2. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came. You keep hearing all, all, all. So all the managers, all the VIPs must be there. And the priests took up the Ark. So all of them are there, but only the priests and specifically the Levites can carry the Ark of God. Verse 4, And they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. Verse 5, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the Ark, in front of the Ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. So the ark is here, carried by the Levites and surrounded by the priests, but in front of it is King Solomon sacrificing, sacrificing sheep after sheep after sheep, oxen and bulls, too many to count. And reminds us of what David did. David did something similar when he brought the ark. Um, to its current place. But now he's moving it from that place to the more permanent place in the temple, sacrificing and worshiping God every step of the way. Verse 6, Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. So this is the innermost part of the temple that um, only the high priest can go in once a year. But this is the most holy place. And it describes how the ark is placed underneath the wings of the cherubim. They made these huge angels with the wings spread out. Verse 7, For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long, that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. And these are the poles that the Levites used to carry the ark. Uh, just a reminder, do you remember what's the ark? What's the ark? You know, the ark is just, well, there's a box. <laughs> but it's meant to be representative of God's presence, of God's throne, of God's rule over his people. And if you remember, it was created during the time of the Exodus. 
and it was a symbol of how God was with his people. As they traveled through the desert, God traveled with them, and it was symbolized by this ark, this presence of God with his people. But now that they are settled in the land, they built the temple, and now God's ark would be with them in the land, in this permanent place. Okay, so far so good. Verse 9, there was nothing in the ark. Again, it's a box, nothing in the ark, except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when he came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Suddenly, when they put in the ark in the most holy place, this cloud or this smoke filled up the whole temple such that the priests couldn't do anything. They couldn't even enter. And this is symbolic of two things. Number one, it means that God really was there. You know, God's presence, God's glory, this cloud is symbolic of God really filling the whole temple with his presence. That's the first thing. But secondly, it's a repeat of what happened at the end of Exodus. So at the end of Exodus, they had the ark, but they also had this tent that they built for the ark. And what happened after they built the tent was that the same thing happened. You know, this glory, the smoke filled the whole tent that Moses couldn't enter. And now the same thing happens. You know, the glory fills the temple so the priests couldn't enter. Again, a reminder that God really is with his people now in the land. And it's symbolized by this smoke, this cloud, this glory that fills the temple. Okie dokie, let's carry on. Verse 12. And then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, describing this cloud again, this smoke. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people, Israel, out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart, to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build this house. But your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I've provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So here, Solomon is uh, reminding the people how they got to this point. You know, God has saved them out of Egypt. God is their savior. God is their God. And more than that, God has promised that one day there will be a symbol of his presence with them. This building is pointing at. He says, he promised my dad that one day your son will be raised up and he will build this temple. 
because David wanted to do it, but says, no, 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 no. Your son will do this. And it's happened. You know, when you see this building, know that God promised that he would cause this to happen. And now this is a reminder that God fulfills his promises. He fulfilled his promises saving us. And now he fulfilled his promise in being with us um, in this temple, in this house that now stands before you. So it's a reminder to the people that God is God. And it's kind of a reminder that they should always, always dedicate themselves to God. You know, don't take it for granted, you know, that God has been so good to you. God has saved you, but dedicate yourselves. Look towards God as the one to whom you owe your whole existence. He brought you to this land. He gave you this blessing. Now worship him as your God. Okay, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands like this towards heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. So earlier on, he was talking to people. Now he is praying to God and speaking directly to God. God, you're the only God. There's no one like you. And he says they're in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, who you what you declare to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you've walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant, David, my father. So he's reminding God, hey, you promised that you'll be with us and we can see it now in the smoke. You know, you've promised that. But now keep this other promise. You told my dad that he will always have a descendant on the throne. And so he wants God to keep that promise, to keep the name of David, to keep the dynasty of David ruling over the people of Israel. Yeah, yeah, so far so good. Verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built? And he's saying, as impressive this building is, you know, God, how can we even think that this will be enough to fit you? Because the whole of creation couldn't fit God. How much less this building, this box that we've built? Yet, verse 28, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. So he's almost saying that the purpose of this building is not to house God. That's not, that's not the reason. It's not meant to be a house for God. It's not meant to be something that God could even fit into. But it's meant to be a reminder a reminder for God to hear their prayer when they speak to him. It says, hear, listening to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays for you this day. So it's meant to be a symbol for God to look at and say, uh-oh, I need to listen when my people pray to me. Verse 29, that your eyes might be open night and day towards this house 
the place of which you've said my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place, and listen in heaven your dwelling place when you hear forgive. So keep hearing that phrase, right? Listen, listen, listen. He's actually daring to say to God, you promised, you promised that you would listen to our prayer. So now this monument stands as a reminder to you, God, that you will hear our prayers when we lift them up to you. A very, very bold thing to say before God, that God promised that he would do. It's almost holding God to his promise, that God would hear our prayers. But more than that, forgive our sins. And this is verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So ensuring justice in the land. Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. So again, that plea to God to hear them, especially when they ask for forgiveness. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. Now, of course, he's saying we should pray. You know, when you have all these disasters, God is reminding us we should pray. When we're being punished for our sins, we should pray. But again, the focus is on God. David is saying to God, look at this temple and, remind, and remember that you promised that you would hear us when we turn back to you in repentance and in prayer and therefore forgive us our sins. It's a very bold thing to remind God to do his job. But here God's job is to hear his people's prayer and to forgive them their sins. Um, where are we? Verse 37, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand towards this place, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only, knows the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. So God hears our prayers, but also God sees our hearts. God can tell who is truly repentant and based on that heart prayer, based on that true repentance of man, he says to God, please judge us, forgive us, and bless us according to our repentance. Verse 41, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, so not just us, he was talking about the individual and the Israelites, but now the foreigner, someone outside the community of God, 
when a foreigner, not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand of your, and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as, your, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I built is called by your name. So Solomon here is almost interceding for people outside of Israel. He's saying, you know, when they pray to you because they know that you're a God, and especially when you're praying to you because of this temple, please, God, answer their prayer. Why? So that they will know that you're a God and they, they will know that this really is um, a house that bears your name. That means we are your people. This really is the house of the true and living God and they might come to know and revere you as well. So there's a kind of evangelistic purpose to the temple that other people outside of Israel might come to know the true and living God through this temple of God. Verse 44, If your people go out to battle against the enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you've chosen and the house that I built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Verse 46, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. <laughs> Very realistic picture of how everyone is, um, is, is susceptible. Everyone will sin against God. So it says, you know, there's no one who does not sin. So it's not so much an if, but when. <laughs> when we sin against you. And it says, verse 46, and you are angry with them and you give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray towards you, pray to you towards this land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen, and the house that I've built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions that they've committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive that they may have compassion on them. And so it's really interesting. He's envisaging the, the exile. He's almost foretelling that there'll be a time when this people will be taken captive and brought to a foreign country. He's, he's actually foretelling a time when this will actually happen in the history of Israel. The whole people will be transported from their homes and brought to an enemy nation. And he says, if they suddenly remember, hey, we have a temple back home, and they pray to you, by looking to the land, to the city, to the temple, please hear them, even though they're far away from the temple. And so it's really, really interesting that the temple here is meant to be a reminder for these people, even though they've been judged, they can pray to God. Even though they're far away from the temple, they can still pray towards the temple and pray towards God, and God will hear them and save them. Verse 51, for they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. 
Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Okay, let's pause here. Let's pause here and think about the purpose of the temple. I think there are two purposes. Number one, it's to remind us to pray. <laughs> it's saying you can pray. When you sin, you can pray to God because you know that he'll hear you. You know, when you sin and you've done something that you know you're wrong and you've sinned against God, you can still call to God because God will hear you all the way in heaven. And the reason you know that he'll hear you is because this monument, this picture of God's presence on earth here in this temple reminds you that he wants you to pray to him and he will forgive you your sin. So that's the first thing. Pray when you sin. But the second function is for God. It's a reminder for God. Because remember, Solomon is now addressing the God. Hear us, hear us, hear us. He's saying to God, God, you promised, and therefore please keep your promise. And it's the promise that God says he will hear our prayer and he will forgive our sins. So two things that the temple does. It reminds us to pray. It reminds God to forgive. And that's how the temple kind of like looks forward to Jesus. Because Jesus, especially his death on the cross, reminds us that we should repent when we sin. That when we sin, we deserve death. We deserve God's judgment. Because he died on the cross, we can actually ask for God's forgiveness. And he will forgive us because well, Jesus. Jesus already took the penalty upon himself. But secondly, when God looks upon us, God is reminded through the cross that well, we have to be forgiven. Not because of anything we did, not because we deserve it, we don't, but because Jesus died on the cross and therefore there is no more condemnation, no more punishment, no more death, and there's only God's favor, God's love, God's blessing because of the cross. And so the cross and Jesus on the cross functions like the temple. It brings us access towards God, reminds us that we can come to God and reminds God that we are his people. Jesus is the true temple of God, bringing man to God and bringing God to man. Okay, let's finish up verse 54. Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched towards heaven. Now, this is the king. He's kneeling down and he's stretching his hands up before heaven. There's something about his posture that shows that he is completely abandoning his whole self before God. When he prays, he's praying before his master and his king. And there's something very appropriate about that. When even the king prays like this, I wonder how much more, how much more we should stretch our hands and we should give all glory to God in our prayers. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed in all his good promise which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine 
with which I pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, that there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments at this day. You know, there's this emphasis on obedience. You know, we need to obey his commandments. We need to walk in his ways. But it's an encouragement to obedience. It's saying you can walk in his ways. You know, there's so much encouragement to walk in his ways because he really is God. And when you do this, everyone will see that he is God. All the peoples of the earth, all the other people who don't know God, they might know God because of your obedience. And so it's a call to faithfulness, but it's an encouragement to be faithful to the one and true God. Yeah. Verse 62, then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. I think it ends with this sacrifice. Verse 63, Solomon offered as a peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. <laughs> That's a lot of animals to be burned and to be offered up as sacrifice. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. It was too small. This one small barbecue pit couldn't fit 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. There was just so much sacrifice and worship offered that day. What do we learn from this? We see that the temple is a place of worship and worship displays God's worth. You know, worship is worship. Worship is not just something that we give, something, but something that displays God's worth. And here he's worth you know, incalculable value of sheep and oxen, thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands, that kind of thing. It's showing that you now God really is worthy of all our lives and everything that we have. So that's the first thing. It shows what worship is. Worship is a reflection of the value of God. But secondly, it shows how unworthy we are. God is worthy. We are unworthy. And it shows that something needs to die. The reason why these sheep are just given as pets to God, but they're killed, is because something needs to die. And that shows our unworthiness. It shows how sinful we are. And it shows how a holy God cannot come into fellowship and relationship with such a holy people unless something dies to make that possible. Again, this points forward to Jesus. It points forward to his sacrifice on the cross. He makes us worthy. He brings us close to God because of his death on the cross. Only the death of the Son of God could make it possible for us to call God our Father and to enable us to even worship Him with our lives today. Jesus is the true temple that brings us close to God, but also brings God close to us. Verse 65, 
So Solomon held a feast at that time in all Israel with him, a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. And that's 1 Kings chapter 8. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to realize what a privilege it is, even to pray to you, because we know that you hear us. And because of Jesus, we know that you hear us. And because we know uh, through Jesus, you forgive us our sins as well. So help us, Lord, to realize the privilege and help us just to pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This has been the Daily Bible Reading Show, looking at 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, thanks for listening. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye.